We could have and should have known that things would get more extreme and more uncertain. That water is currently so full of sediment that it's effectively untreatable. It will overwhelm the drinking water filtration plant. I mean, it's the one thing you can say with great certainty about human-induced climate change is that it will increase the frequency and the intensity of extremes. They've suddenly gone on to level four water restrictions while the dam has gone from 10% full to overflowing. In this episode, we're looking at how Australia's disastrous bushfire season affected our water systems, how drinking water can become so easily compromised, and how experts are working to make sure our system is resilient for next time. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Julia Karkatsul. Back in February, the New South Wales coast experienced a significant rainfall event. Sydney recorded its heaviest drenching in over three decades. The deluge delivered almost 400 millimetres of rain over just four days. Videos of farmers bearing wide grins and sloshing around in puddles circulated on social media. It provided temporary reprieve from a long and tiresome drought and a horrendous bushfire season. But with the rain came a fierce storm. Strong winds and flash flooding caused havoc in the state. Fallen power poles and trees damaged wires, hurting the electricity network. At one point, over 100,000 people were without power in northern Sydney and the New South Wales central coast. And the floods arriving straight off the back of a bushfire season resulted in other consequences. Water transported all the ash and sediment from the fires into our water supply. So a really heavy rainfall event causes a lot of erosion in the catchment and it washes the soil away, turns it into mud, and we end up with mud as well as the ash uh, in our, our waterways. This is Stuart Kahn. I'm a professor in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of New South Wales. And he's talking about mud and ash contaminating water quality at Lake Burragarang, a reservoir created by Warragamba Dam. The reservoir is Sydney's largest supplier of water, storing a whopping 80% of the city's supply. After the heavy rainfall event, levels at Warragamba Dam reached over 60% capacity, up from 45%, the lowest level in 15 years. But contamination from fires meant that water quality was affected. The sediment, ash and debris seen floating on the surface of Lake Burragarang came from two catchments. It uh, takes water from um, two main inflows, the Wallandilly River to the south and the Cox's River to the north. And they bring water from as far away as uh, Goulburn up the Wallandilly River and Lithgow on the, on the Cox's River. Now in the upper reaches of, of Warwickamba Dam, both in the Cox's River and the Wallandilly River, uh, we're dealing with high amounts of, of mud and ash, so high amounts of sediment, organic carbon, nutrients that um, will present water quality problems. 
Water New South Wales recorded that more than 300,000 hectares of surrounding catchment land, almost the entire perimeter of the dam, was burnt. This caused the catchments to become unstable, without healthy trees and undergrowth to hold the soil in place. After a fire, the ground also becomes more water repelling. So it's actually much more likely that a rainfall event will not be soaked up and will produce runoff and a lot more runoff than it um, otherwise would have before a fire. Water collected at Warragamba Dam is transported via a pipeline. The water comes down to the Prospect Water Filtration Plant in Western Sydney, uh, where it's treated and then distributed via a fairly complex uh, water distribution network to the, to the customers in Sydney. A water filtration plant or drinking water treatment plant involves the removal of unwanted particles like sediment from water. Once the water is relatively clean, it is then disinfected with chlorine. And although there were no nasty surprises for Sydney residents when flicking on their taps, contamination did place a lot of pressure on the water treatment plant and could again. So an absolute worst case scenario, I think, is that our rate of production of water would slow down because we're spending so much time cleaning the filters rather than producing drinking water. Uh, and that could cause a short-term shortage. But in other areas of the state, residents weren't so lucky. Some water treatment plants in southern New South Wales, around the Bega Valley and Bermagui areas, were hardest hit by the fires. The Brogo Dam, supplying water to those areas, was practically overflowing, reaching 110% capacity from the rainfall. But due to contamination from fires, that water was practically unusable. They have a dam that's been very seriously impacted by ash and sediment. That water is currently so full of sediment that it's effectively untreatable. It will overwhelm the, the drinking water filtration plant. They've suddenly gone on to level four water restrictions while their dam has gone from 10% full to overflowing. Meaning residents were forced to look elsewhere for their water supply. They're pumping water from a source which they no longer use. It's an old source, an old reservoir um, for the south coast that they think, I guess they can think of as an emergency supply now, um, which is providing some of the water, um, but the rest of the water is being trucked in. The Bigger Valley Shire Council said water was being trucked into the town at a cost of $30,000 per day. But the fires affected water treatment plants in other ways. Some took direct damage from fires, losing power completely. A number of plants were impacted. Most of them, um, they, they simply lost the power to, to, to operate and lost the electricity supply. Uh, so they weren't able to disinfect water. They weren't able to dose chlorine in the way that you would dose chlorine in order to ensure that you're killing any bacteria that might be present and therefore ensuring that the water is safe. Other treatment plants simply suffered from demand simply the demand of water that was required to fight fires, how people were putting sprinklers on in their front yard to try and protect their houses, uh, and the amount of water that was being consumed was more than what the drinking water treatment plant could keep up with, because drinking water treatment um, is, a, is a relatively slow process. There's a limit to how much water you can push through a plant, depending on how big it, the plant is sized to. This caused the towns to draw raw, untreated water straight from the river 
into the drinking water supply without treatment. You don't know that you're necessarily providing safe drinking water because you can't be sure that there's not bacteria in that water that you're not treating with, with the chlorine. Uh, and so under those circumstances, a boil water alert was called, um, called by the, the local council through consultation with New South Wales Health. Uh, and those people were encouraged to boil water if possible. And if they were unable to boil water because they might have lost power, uh, then there are alternative strategies for uh, ensuring water is safe to drink. And the advice actually that was given by New South Wales Health was to disinfect water with a very small amount of, of laundry bleach, chlorine-based laundry bleach, which you can add to drinking water. It's the same way that we disinfect drinking water using chlorine. Um, and if you do that properly and carefully, you can ensure that um, you, you're having a good disinfection effect and killing any bacteria that might be present and making the water safe to drink. While boiling or bleaching isn't anyone's idea of a good time, water contamination can have longer term consequences if not dealt with. Bushfire ash can cause the deoxygenation of water, causing fish deaths or even cause water to turn black due to chemical changes. Ash can also cause the growth of cyanobacteria, affecting drinking water taste and odour. We could have and should have known that things would get more extreme and more uncertain. Stuart White is the director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. We realised across Australia that the climate is highly variable and is likely to get more variable. I mean, it's the one thing you can say with great certainty about uh, human-induced climate change is that it will increase the level, the frequency and the intensity of extremes, whether those extremes are high rainfall and flooding in some areas or whether they're uh, longer and more severe droughts in other areas. But, like Stuart Kahn, he says we can plan for that. Even if we're not sure how bad it will be, we can plan for uh, a greater level of uncertainty by improving resilience in the system. How do we try and prevent um, having such horrific fires in our, our drinking water catchments? Do you have situations like the Brogo River where you've got really one catchment, uh, one river, one dam, one treatment plant, and if anything along that chain uh, goes wrong, then the whole system falls over and you can no longer supply drinking water from that system anymore. Uh, should we be looking at cities having alternatives and being able to move water around from one area to another where, where water might have been contaminated or impacted in, in one circumstance but not in another? Thinking about resilience in terms of, of being able to adjust what we're doing and respond to uh, a poor situation in order to be able to make it better. And there's plenty we can do such as implementing fencing with mesh cloths to hold back the soil and ash, or even placing silt curtains into the reservoir. So they're two big floating booms that are anchored on either side of the gorge section of the reservoir. They have a curtain that hangs down about two or three metres uh, into the water column, and the idea is that that will retain some of that ash and sediment in some confined parts of the reservoir rather than allowing it to flow down towards the dam wall, which is where the drinking water offtakes are. We can also adjust the level at which we take water out of the reservoir. So normally we take water close to the surface because it's normally the best quality water. 
Uh, however, they've now adjusted that to taking water about 45 metres uh, below the surface. That's another strategy, another opportunity to try to target the best quality water in the reservoir and leave the worst quality water behind. So there are many opportunities before even getting to the treatment plant. And then at the treatment plant, uh, if there's high amounts of sediment coming into the treatment plant, then it will be necessary to adjust the treatment processes. Uh, we would adjust the, the concentration of coagulants, the chemicals that we add to treat water, uh, and we would have to adjust the filtration process as well, and it would slow down because you'd be spending a lot more time cleaning the filters and a lot less time actually filtering water and producing water. We can also draw from multiple sources of water. Warragamba Dam is by far the most important. As I said, it contains about 80% of our, our storage. However, for short periods of time, a couple of weeks, um, we can draw a lot of water from our other dams, such as Nepean, which is now full and spilling and can be topped up um, by Talawa Dam and, and, we, and the other dams that we have uh, up on the Illawarra Escarpment, Cordoe, Cataract, uh, we can draw water from all of those dams into Sydney via a, a channel called the Upper Canal. And if we really have to, we can pull water out of the Prospect Reservoir, which is an old reservoir in Western Sydney that used to be an important part of Sydney's drinking water supply, but we don't use it anymore. It's pretty much sitting there unused um, and we can think of it as, an, as a short-term emergency um, backup. It won't last us for months but it will get us through a short-term emergency. Another source of water is from a desalination plant. In the case of Sydney, the seawater desalination plant's interesting because we're talking about flexibility and being able to draw from alternative sources. And the desalination plant is another example of how you can provide that in addition to other dams. Desalination is operational right across Australia, with plants in Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Western Australia. Sydney's desalination plant is located in Cornell, south of Sydney, and is one of the largest in the world. It provides about 15% of the city's drinking water. The desalination plant uh, takes seawater typically uh, and converts it to fresh water. Uh, so there's a, a waste stream which is generated of brine which is usually discharged back to the ocean. Uh, it uses energy to do this, usually through membranes uh, nowadays and uh, so it forces water through plastic membranes uh, to remove the dissolved salts in the water. And seawater has a much higher um, uh, concentration of salt than uh, say the uh, recycled wastewater and uh, or the salt that you would typically find in uh, say the human body uh, so it requires a lot of energy to remove uh, that salt water. Sydney's desalination plant was turned on in January to provide a backup source of drinking water when Sydney's dam levels dipped below 60% due to the drought. Uh, it has some advantages in that fundamentally it's very different to a regular drinking water catchment and therefore it's, it's susceptible to different risks. I'm not saying it's risk-free. Um, things can go wrong, it could lose power, you could have an earthquake, you could have a tsunami, all sorts of things could happen. But they're not the same risks generally um, as the risks that we see on our conventional water supplies. So you'd be very unlucky if uh, things went wrong with both at the same time. And so I think that really does provide some, some valuable flexibility and um, 
and, and resilience to an overall water supply system. When Brisbane experienced a major flood in 2013, when the city's main water supply, Lake Wyvernhoe, overflowed, residents faced a similar predicament to the community in Bega Valley and Bermagui. Erosion from farms and riverbanks overwhelmed the water treatment plant. What saved them on that particular occasion in Brisbane was the seawater desalination plant down at the Gold Coast. It's a relatively small desal plant, but what they have is pipelines that can bring the water up from the Gold Coast into Brisbane when they need it. And so they pushed the water into the Brisbane system as hard as they could and they managed to maintain water pressure um, in Brisbane. I think those those advantages and those ways of thinking about desalination should become more important and we should be thinking about it as more than just something that we flick on um, when we're about to run out of water in a drought because uh, we could end up with a much more sophisticated and resilient drinking water supply if we, if we thought about it carefully. But Stuart from UTS says while desalination's role in the water supply chain is important, we should think carefully before investing in more of it. Desalination plants can have an important role to play in water supply systems. The, the key thing is that because of the, both the expense of the plants as a capital cost, but also the huge operating costs associated with the energy supply and uh, greenhouse emissions if, those, uh, if the energy is supplied using fossil fuels, we need to think very carefully about investment in desalination plants and make sure that we have done absolutely everything we can prior to building a desalination plant to avoid that and to defer the cost. The options we have for reducing water use, for improving, particularly for improving the efficiency of water use, uh, are huge. Uh, and while some of those have been implemented, there is still a long way that we can go. We can plan for uh, a greater level of uncertainty by improving resilience in the system. Now there's a couple of ways you can do that. One is to try and build your way out of it by building more capital works, building more desalination plants, building more dams. There are some problems with that. Building more dams is often a problem if you don't have enough rainfall um, to fill them. Uh, building more desalination plants has a capital cost, it's a, there's a time delay and, and then if it rains of course you've got a high operating cost and you uh, mostly switch them off. So what we can do instead is put in place uh, a lot more smaller scale solutions, more resilient solutions, try and reduce demand through water efficiency and improving structural water efficiency. Particularly industrial use and the way that we supply water and make sure that we're more efficient in the way that we use water and reduce the leakages and losses. And we should also look at water reuse, water recycling. We discharge thousand megalitres per day, a thousand million litres per day of wastewater into the Pacific Ocean in, in Sydney. And that's potentially water that we could tap into and treat, purify and reuse as well. So they're all different solutions and those differences sometimes are the advantages because the more diverse, it's like a share portfolio. If you have a broad portfolio of shares that are all different to each other, subject to different um, threats and influences within the economy, uh, then you have a degree of resilience. You're unlikely uh, to, to lose all of your value, to lose all of your money at once because of the diversity of, of the portfolio. And I think that's the way we should think about water. And that's why we should think about having lots of different sources of water uh, and making good use of them in the ways that are appropriate for those sources.
Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.